Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The Conservative Party of Canada considers itself ready to take over governing of Canada from the Liberals. Well, how would they do it? Andrew Scheer was a guest on my show. I asked him. The Trans Mountain Pipeline extension and the court ruling. I spoke with Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan about that and the implications for Western Canada and, in fact, all of us. What does the reporter columnist who exposed information of massive U.S. financial inflow into Canada to support and organize opposition to the Alberta oil sands and the construction of pipelines from Alberta to B.C. have to say about the Trans Mountain Court ruling? The American view of the NAFTA issue. I spoke with Thomas Del Baccaro. He's a former chairman of the California GOP and a U.S. Senate candidate. Here's what he said about what the Americans think of NAFTA. Tom Caldwell is the chairman of Caldwell Securities in Toronto and New York. So how does the investment and financial community see the Canadian court decision concerning the Trans Mountain Pipeline? You know, it's not just Trans Mountain Pipeline in the news. Keystone XL is back making headlines. Dennis McConaughey is the former executive vice president of TransCanada. Keystone XL was his baby. He talked to me about the pipeline issue. All of it. Have a listen. Andrew Scheer joins us, the Conservative Party leader in Canada, who uh, is ready to take over all of these issues and all of these files and all of these problems. Um, after the election on the 21st of October of next year, are you still want that job? Absolutely. More than ever, uh, Roy. Uh, Canadians can't afford uh, to keep paying for Justin Trudeau's failures, and the only way uh, for this to stop, for us to get our energy sector back on track to to have better trading relationships with our important allies uh, is for a Conservative government in 2019. The Trans Mountain Pipeline Extension Court decision, Mr. Scheer, the uh, the impact on this country. So the question is, is now what? Uh, what do you expect Mr. Trudeau to do? We know what he should do. What do you expect him to do? And let's keep in mind that when the vice chair of uh, TD Bank, Frank McKenna, was on this program not long ago, he told us about the TD study, which shows that $117 billion was lost by the Canadian economy over a recent 10-year period because we sell our oil at such deeply discounted prices to the United States because, effectively, they're our only client. So what, 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 what do you want to see Trudeau do? And what do you expect him to do? Well, what I'd like... Well, I, I don't expect much at this point, unfortunately. What I would like to see him to do is what he should have done uh, a long time ago, and that uh, was uh, put out a clear roadmap for how uh, to get Trans Mountain built. We have to keep this in mind, though. Uh, the, the reason why there's so much attention on Trans Mountain is because it's the only current uh, pipeline project. Uh, the, the Trudeau Liberals killed the Northern Gateway pipeline, which would have opened up Asian markets with a deep water port uh, based purely on political decisions. And they killed Energy East, which would have brought Western energy to Eastern Canadian markets displacing foreign oil. And what I'm really afraid of is that when you look at what Justin Trudeau says when he's in Europe, uh, when he says he wants to phase out the energy sector, when you look at his environment minister and his senior people in, in policy-making decisions, uh, this is what they wanted all along. They've always wanted to phase Canada off of, uh, of, of our energy sector, and I'm afraid that they're, that they're doing this, either uh, by intentionally killing projects or by allowing uh, other groups and, 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 and decisions to, to do it for them. Well, he said that, didn't he, at the town hall meeting that he held last year, where he said the uh, oil sands need to be phased out. It can't be any more clear than that. Yeah, he, exactly. I mean, I take him at his word. Uh, when, he, when he says, when he, when, he, when he expresses frustration at that town hall, saying, you know, we can't do this overnight, but this is what we're working towards. And when he went to Europe, you know, he, he didn't just say the, uh, to phase Canada off the oil sands. He actually said phase, us, phase out the energy sector in total. And so, you know, uh, I, I believe he's serious. I believe he, he actually uh, wants that, that goal to be achieved. Um, what's needed here is clear legislation asserting federal jurisdiction and clearly defining what 
environmental consultation and what First Nations consultation means. What, what I get most frustrated when I meet with people in the energy sector and pipeline proponents, they get so frustrated when a government says, okay, here are the goalposts. And then they go about trying to kick the ball to the goalposts. And then just as they're about to line up for the kick, the government says, oh, sorry, we've changed it. And that, that, that's what creates uncertainty. And, and that's what creates the decisions where investors say, we're just not going to build projects in Canada anymore. There are other jurisdictions that want our money, welcome it, are happy about the jobs that come along with it. Canada is sending a terrible message around the world when we can't even get pipelines built to take our own products to market. You know, I spoke with Tom Caldwell earlier in the program, the chairman of Caldwell Securities, and they, uh, they're in New York and in Toronto. They have seats, uh, seats on the NYSE and the TSX. And uh, Mr. Caldwell very clearly said this is a sending a very, very negative signal to, uh, to, to the rest of the world, to the investment world. What has come out of that courtroom in, 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 in British Columbia is, sends a very negative signal. What has happening with NAFTA sends a very negative signal. And Mr. Trudeau's government have had uh, or has had stewardship of these files for going on three years. So it never really should have come to this. And when Trudeau said, as he said six months ago, he has the power to drive this through, well, what's he waiting for? Well, exactly. And and we have to keep in mind that the, the, the consultation process all happened under the, the Liberals' watch. And, and this has just sent a, a terrible signal, as you mentioned. You know, the, the people around the world who make billion-dollar decisions about where to invest – they're just not looking at Canada right now in the energy sector because there's no guarantee that they'll actually, uh, get, even if they got an approval, that they could actually uh, get it built. And that's why we've seen over $80 billion leave the country. I'll, I'll give you a concrete example of how Justin Trudeau's made this worse. With their new regulatory regime, under the old system, in order to, uh, to get standing, in order to be able to appear before a consultation hearing, you had to prove some kind of a connection to the project. So, you know, you could, you could be, uh, live in a community that was affected by the route, or you had to show expertise. You know, you had to have some kind of accreditation or, or certification that made you an expert. The new liberal legislation allows literally anybody in Canada to appear before the hearing and make a submission. And that is that means any environmental group anywhere in another province on the other side of the country can appear and, and bog down these hearings with, with, uh, with their submissions. So it, everything the Liberals have done has added more uncertainty to the process, and, and we're suffering for it. It, it, it. it means lost jobs, lost jobs and lost economic activity. So if you're the prime minister of this country after the next election, and if you're faced with this situation, if it's ongoing, and I wouldn't be surprised if it is, what do you do to bring it to a satisfactory conclusion, to a satisfactory conclusion to the, to the Canadian people, who many of whom are, or at least some of whom are saying, and particularly in the West, and you know that, you're from Saskatchewan, uh, who are questioning now whether Canada is on their side or not. How do you bring this to a satisfactory conclusion as Prime Minister? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of concern in, in uh, Western Canada right now about why it seems that when uh, there are projects that affect Western Canada that, that uh, there doesn't seem to be the path to get them uh, built. And that's why we have a federal government. That's why we have federal areas of jurisdiction for things that cross provincial lines so that we can make sure that Confederation works for every part of Canada. So well, what do you do? Uh, what, right what, what, does, what does Andrew Scheer so, do as Prime Minister? What does Prime Minister so, Scheer uh, do? Uh, well, exactly what we've been talking about for months now. We need to undo the liberal regulatory changes uh, in Bill C-69 that, that adds all this uncertainty. We also need legislation to clearly define what these consultations look like so it becomes less subjective and more certain. That is what uh, the, the, the business community needs to see. Say, okay, here are the firm markers down. This is what consultations with First Nations looks like. This is what is required for an environmental process. So there's certainty about it. That's all they're looking for. They're happy to meet the, the, the tough standards if there's certainty. So that needs to be more clearly defined. The Liberal government promised legislation to get Trans Mountain built. We waited months, and the House rose for the summer without it. I believe that with... Uh, with this type of certainty, with, with legislative certainty on these areas, asserting federal jurisdiction and providing a clear roadmap to hit the targets for environmental and First Nations consultations, that we can restore that investor confidence. But we're not just going to, it's not going to happen if it just, if, if the Liberal government just continues to do nothing. Yeah. I have one question for you about NAFTA. I like what you just said. Uh, NAFTA development restarts on Wednesday of next week. Uh, the, the talks start. Uh, the Americans are sticking to wanting Canadian concessions, and um, the dairy supply 
management issue keeps coming up. Are Canadian politicians, including you, Mr. Scheer, hamstrung by knowing the Canadian dairy industry has been financially supporting political parties? No, not at all. And, and I point out that the Conservative Party has had an unblemished track record of signing new trade deals, opening up market access, protecting uh, the, the privileged access we have in the U.S. for things like auto and manufacturing, while at the same time uh, protecting our, 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 our programs around dairy. Keep in mind that when Donald Trump attacks uh, Canada's support system. He never talks about the U.S. systems that support their dairy producers or their agricultural producers. The U.S. Farm Bill is a billion, multi-billion dollar aid package to uh, the U.S. agricultural sector every year, and they have a, a whole myriad of systems at the state and federal level for floor prices and quotas themselves. So I believe it's possible to do, do both. I'm very concerned that uh, it seems like Mexico and the United States have come to agreement on key things, uh, while Justin Trudeau's government wasn't even at the table. And we're going to find out next week what uh, you know what was presented to us, how much of it was a fait accompli, and uh, and and you know we're going to we're going to be holding the government to account for how they've handled these uh, these talks. Well, good for you because we do have the right to know what happened between the United States and Mexico, because we had a, th- a partnership of three in NAFTA, and when two of them wander off, that's called an affair. Uh, I think. <laughs> well, well, and it, it, it all happened, uh, you know, behind Justin Trudeau's back. And, and this is why, uh, from the beginning, we've been urging the government to focus on the economic issues. You know, you'll remember that when uh, Justin Trudeau volunteered Canada to be a part of the renegotiation, when, when you know, the, the initial concerns that uh, the U.S. president was raising was mostly centered around Mexico, uh, Trudeau said it's a great idea to renegotiate and hopped in. And what did he bring to the table? He brought in social issues that, uh, that have nothing to do with market access, mm-hmm. uh, that have nothing to do with, you know, enhancing trade uh, in key sectors. And, uh, you know, we, we have some serious questions about what types of deals were on the table earlier and whether or not uh, the, the Trudeau's government focus on non-economic things has now led us uh, to where we are today. Okay, I have one last question for you. Uh, is the Maxime Bernier issue finished? Well, in, in terms of uh, where our focus, absolutely, you know, he's made his decision, and the overwhelming response from uh, uh, from our membership and from uh, people who are involved in the last leadership campaign is that uh, you know the, the, their home is in the Conservative Party. It's our party that's fighting uh, for the the very issues that uh, he claimed to care about during the leadership race. So we're looking forward. We're building a broad-based uh, coalition of of, uh, of different kinds of conservatives. Uh, Everywhere from uh, from centrist conservatives to free market conservatives to social conservatives to democratic reform conservatives, and we all know that in politics it's all about finding that common ground. And yeah. if, uh, if if one person decides to focus on their own personal ambitions, uh, that doesn't help the team. It doesn't help us advance the cause on any aspects of the issues that we care about. Now, the only thing I'd say to you is keep your ear to the ground and listen to the common people, the average person, as Trudeau likes to call it, the middle class. And uh, the, you know the, uh, the the lobbyists are always going to fill your ear with something or other, but. Listen to the listen to the folks, Mr. Shear. Thank you for the time. Absolutely, good talking to you. Thank you very much. Always appreciate it. Bye bye, Andrew Shear, the uh, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Okay, it's Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. If you want to get on me for not getting on the the uh, supply management issue more, but I just had other questions to ask. Get your own show. Now, in April, I uh, spoke with Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan about. Premier Horgan, and uh, also about what was going on with uh, Alberta and Rachel Notley, and they were at loggerheads then, the two provinces, over the issue of Trans Mountain and uh, British Columbia trying to delay Trans Mountain, and Alberta being very upset about that and stopping the inflow of uh, British Columbia wine, and then passing legislation which would uh, have allowed the uh, province to reduce the amount of oil that flows from uh, Alberta to British Columbia. So here we are today. A few days after that court ruling and the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, joins me again on the program. Premier, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, The federal court ruling stopped TMX in its tracks. What is your reaction? What is the reaction of Saskatchewan and Western Canadians generally? Well, we need to restart it, <laughs> and we need to do that sooner, sooner rather than later. And this is precisely what uh, governments uh, of all levels, in this case the jurisdiction is the federal government, uh, they need to take every opportunity and use every tool that they have to restart the, the approval process, the construction uh, of this pipeline, so that we can actually 
finish the construction of this pipeline and, and realize some of the benefits across our nation. This is a this is this is a real problem for for our economy. I would say just not in Western Canada, but across the nation. What's the emotional reaction? What what how are how are Western Canadians, particularly in Saskatchewan and Alberta, um, feeling today? Feeling this weekend? Well, I, I think this feeds into a larger concern that we have in Western Canada, and 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 this is this is just one pipeline that we're talking about that would enhance our you know, you know our value for for one one industry that we have in Saskatchewan being the energy industry. We also have agriculture, manufacturing, mining. Um, so this adds to I think a growing sense of frustration that we have in in our province, and I'll speak to our province, but I, I think it's fair to say that it's starting to extend across the nation as well, on on really three fronts that. That are that are really becoming uh, frustrating from for our economy. First, is we have had no expansion of our market access or our trade opportunities, and and you know most notably we're talking about our, our relationship with the United States right now. But we have haven't had expansion of our uranium opportunities in into China. We haven't had the expansion of of our our opportunities into India. Um, we need. We need these free and or fair and open uh, trade agreements uh, with our nations, including the United States. Now we're having troubles uh, getting that product to those to those markets. Our, our transportation mechanisms, whether it be our plugged rail systems or our opportunity to get some of this product into new and uh, new capacity through pipelines. Uh, TMX is the one of, that we're talking about today. But Energy East has gone by the wayside and and should come back into the conversation as well to service Canadian markets. And as well, uh, in addition to all of this, we have tax and regulations that are changing, you know, by the month. We have a, 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 the attempted imposition of a carbon tax. We have B- Bill C-69 now um, in, in, at, the, uh, at the Federal Senate, which, which is uh, tremendously problematic for the industries that create wealth for Canadians across the nation and keep families uh, essentially employed in this nation. This is a, a growing sense of frustration, and TMX, I think, is just, a, you know, one, one addition to that frustration that we have here in Saskatchewan. It really is one issue after another. It, you can uh, dot any series of I's and cross any series of T's. And then additional regulations, additional challenges, additional problems arise. And uh, and, and the, the issues never seem to get resolved. Now, you said to me in April of this year, and I mentioned this at the beginning as BC and Alberta were squaring off over TMX, that if Alberta slowed the flow of oil to British Columbia and British Columbia came calling to Saskatchewan, you would see to it legislation was passed in Saskatchewan to allow the government to cut petroleum supplies to BC, and you would tell Premier John Horgan no. You also said something most mainstream media people didn't have the courage to touch with a 40-foot pole. Here's what you said to me. If a province such as British Columbia is able to stop one of these projects, it begs the question, do we still have a nation? Premier, people are asking that question, and... uh, I don't know if it's fair for me to run this by you again, but but I'm seeing emails. People are just so frustrated and are questioning not their loyalty to Canada, but the government's loyalty to Canadians. It's a fair question. It's a fair question then, and it's a fair question today. Uh, we we have uh, opportunities to to expand our opportunities uh, from from an ec- economic perspective and expand our jobs here in the nation to create work for the people that are moving here from other areas of the world. The 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 refugees and the immigrants that we have moving into this nation, we have an opportunity to provide them every opportunity that we've experienced as Canadians over the last uh, uh, few decades. And in order to do that. Um, we need to work together to 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 have to um, ensure that we have these fair trade deals with our nations. To ensure that we have the opportunity to safely transport this product uh, to those nations all around the world. Uh, that includes construction of the of these pipelines. And we shouldn't forget this. And I always say this. And I never I never um, give up. Uh, let an opportunity pass. The, the products that we produce. And again, I'll speak to Saskatchewan, but it but it extends to Canadian products as well. They're as sustainable as anywhere in the in the world. And when we are able to offset or or, or uh, uh, sell our products in place of products that are produced in other areas of the world, um, we we are doing right by the environment. We are doing right by our nation. We are doing right by, from in my case, the people that I represent. There's been nonstop response to my retweeting what Frank McKenna, the deputy chair of TD Bank, told us not long ago on the show, and that is that a TD study showed. You're aware of this, that Canada lost out on $117 billion over a recent 10-year period because of the discount rate at which we sell our oil to the United States, are forced to sell our oil 
at a discount to the United States. So what we need now, we need a really true commitment from Ottawa that they're going to do whatever they have to do, the Prime Minister does will do whatever he has to do, to get Trans Mountain started and completed and operational. Are, it, it, do you have a sense that there is a true commitment from the federal government to do this? We're going to know, and we're going to know right away, because I think the path forward for Trans Mountain and the path forward for any other energy infrastructure, essentially, and that's that's the larger question here, is is Trans Mountain, Trans Mountain is, is the barometer, but are we prepared to continue to allow investment into energy infrastructure and into industrial infrastructure in our nation? But in the case of TMX, uh, what we need to do is we need we need the federal government to address uh, what, what has happened, uh, what the court has ruled here right away, um, and use all the tools that they have uh, in their toolbox and, and utilize them very quickly. First, they should file an appeal immediately. Second, um, they should engage uh, with those, further engage uh, with, with those uh, that have concerns uh, with this, whether that's a, a weak uh, emergency committee in Ottawa and bring people in. What, whatever that needs to look like, they need to do it and do it very quickly. And they should recall the, the Parliament. They should have an emergency session of Parliament and reaffirm their jurisdiction over these nation-building projects such as this pipeline and such as any future pipelines that would be proposed. I, I, I continue to think we should should have the conversation around Energy East as uh, that services not only not only uh, nations around the world with our sustainable product, but services and offsets um, uh, the product coming in from around the world that Canadians are currently using. So, so that that's the way I see forward on this project, and ultimately for other projects, is to recall the Parliament. Uh, pass some emergency legislation to reaffirm their jurisdiction in this area, um, do any uh, emergency consult- consulting that is necessary, and let's move forward with this project, and let's signal to the world that we're ready to move forward uh, with future investment on other projects in our nation. Or we will be in serious, serious trouble. As Ronald Reagan said when somebody asked him, how do you start a small business, Mr. President? He said, start a big one and wait. Uh, This is a really, really critically important issue, and you've mentioned Energy East on several occasions. Because we don't have the Energy East pipeline, because it was stopped by um, the politicians in the province of Quebec, we're still importing on a daily basis 750,000 barrels of, uh, of oil, or at least a product to be refined, petroleum product to be refined in eastern Canadian refineries. We wouldn't have to pay for that, and we, we wouldn't be running up potentially another $117 billion uh, d- debt or deficit over the next 10 years if, uh, if this situation that Mr. McKenna talked about were to continue. You're right. We have to, we have to show them the, the determination and then get it done. There's a, there's a greater good here as as Canadians, and we're all Canadians first if we truly do have a nation, and I and I think we do, um, but we are all Canadians first, and there is a greater good that we need to keep our eye on. Bill C sixty nine uh, does not address uh, you know that greater good, uh, imposing a carbon tax across a nation, which essentially now with yesterday's announcement in Alberta, uh, looks like we're going to have likely one province that will be in compliance with what the federal government uh, is uh, is attempting to impose on on another uh, well Saskatchewan is the is the province that is singled out but he, essentially they're going to have to impose uh, their carbon tax their federal backstop on all of the provinces uh, very shortly uh, aside from Quebec so we have one province that is in compliance with the federal government on that piece um, we need to halt some of these uh, some of these initiatives that have put forward have this first minister's meeting this fall with where the premiers will meet with the prime Minister, and let's have a serious conversation about where we are going with respect to the competitiveness and the investment attraction of our uh, of our already sustainable industries. Never, never, never mind new investment. Let's keep the investment that we are used to having uh, in our provinces and in our communities here, and then let's worry about the expansion. Premier, thank you for the time. We're lucky to have you. Thanks so much, Roy. I appreciate it. Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. At Fair Questions is Vivian Krauss' Twitter handle, and she is the remarkable, remarkable reporter 
who for the longest time was telling us, look, 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 here it is. Look at all the money that's pouring into Canada from United States special interest groups who are trying to derail our energy industry. Here, I've got the information. I have the facts. And she published it in the Financial uh, Post. And finally, we, uh, we, we collectively heard the message and we, we caught on. And Vivian, thank you again for what you've been doing for all of us. And how do you come out of the last few days and that that court ruling in 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 BC and what what are you hearing uh, from from Canadians? Hi, Roy. Well, thanks very much for having me back on your show. And um, by the way, you know, I'm actually not a, a reporter. I'm just a citizen. I'm just did this uh, this uh, work I've done here as a member of the public. But um, yeah, well, you're a great I'm, reporter. But I'm not a reporter. No, no, I know. I'm, I'm saying for, <laughs> for being not a reporter, you're a great reporter. Oh well, thanks anyway. But you know, I mean, I, I'm I'm dismayed. I'm I'm disappointed. But that said, you know, let's say first here that um, two of the reasons that the court gave for rejecting the 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 NEB's ruling were one, the protection of the orca whale, and two, the importance of consulting with First Nations people. And both of those, I think, are very important. I, I certainly don't uh, don't disagree with either of those as as things that we need to do, but it disappoints me that uh, despite all the efforts that are currently already being made, both for the orca and especially for First Nations people, the, the court still seems to have think that we've fallen short. And um, I think I, I am concerned, Roy, because I think that there are outside interests at play here, and that the reason that this court case was brought forward. Um, may well have been in part because of uh, wanting interest in protecting important species like the orca and others and their wild habitat. And it certainly was also um, to recognize and acknowledge the importance of, of Aboriginal rights. But there's a third issue here, and that's that these court cases were funded as part of a non-Canadian effort a, you know, that has been running for more than a decade it's received hundreds of millions of dollars, and it aims to landlock crude oil from Western Canada and keep Canada out of the global oil market. And that's something I, I can't help but wonder if the judge was aware, if, if she was aware of where the money came from that the uh, so-called environmental groups used to bring all of the various legal actions that ultimately led them and got them into the, the, the Court of Appeal. And that's something I, I don't know, I, I, you know, as a layperson, I don't know at what point that needs to be considered. Obviously, though, the law is the law, and the law must be respected, uh, no matter, you know, who pays for the, the court case that, that brings the, the, the action, the complaint, into the courtroom. But I think we, we need to realize, too, that, you know, all the evidence that was collected, um, that was done in part with funding that was explicitly uh, for to serve an outside purpose. And that's something I think we need to grapple with. Absolutely, and this is something the Prime Minister should should address and uh, and and very quickly, because the this will continue, as you pointed out, this is not going to stop. This will continue. The funding will con- will continue, the efforts will continue. And the idea and that their hope is to maintain the landlocked reality for Canada's petroleum uh, industry yeah. and and to uh, and to and to keep the situation as it is I went a little long with mr. Shear Vivian so I'm gonna have to get you back on as um, in the very near future and we need to talk more about this but thanks so That'd much for joining us and, and thanks so you, much, Roy. yeah you're the best you're the best you take care you take care have take a great care. weekend bye-bye Bye for now Vivian Krause at fair questions on Twitter so on this issue of the um, of NAFTA we're joined on the program by the former chairman of the uh, GOP, the Republican Party in California. He is a U.S. Senate candidate, or was a Senate candidate for the United States Senate. He's a, law, a lawyer. He's the author of The Divided Era. We sure live in a divided era, don't we? And uh, also The New Conservative Paradigm. And he's a, a writer for Forbes.com. His name is Thomas Del Beccaro. Mr. Del Beccaro, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. And... Uh, is, is the Trump administration really indifferent to whether or not a trade deal is reached with Canada, or is Mr. Trump negotiating? Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to be on your show. I, I would think towards the latter. Trump has uh, an interesting style. He's had it for decades, really. 
he's used to negotiating in the press, you know, when, when he was in New York as just a real estate mogul, and he did things related to the city. He, he acted the same way. Now, it, it takes on different meaning, right? When, when you're a, an international executive or president, uh, people tend to hang on every word as if that is the latest uh, tea leaf to be read. But I would say Trump is negotiating. You're right. Canada is a uh, huge trading partner for the United States, and uh, Trump has different trade views than uh, a lot of conservatives, but I think he wants to make a deal, and I think by election time a deal will have been made with all three parties. Well, there's a lot of uh, blood pressure issues going on. Uh, I know that. Where do you think NAFTA broke down as far as the United States is concerned? Or did NAFTA break down as far as the U.S. is concerned? Or did it break down only as far as Donald Trump is concerned? Well, you know, historically you find that countries with bad economic times, a stagnant economy, start division really rises and nationalism rises. And you get this argument that you shouldn't have immigrants. Herbert Hoover banned all immigration in 1932 uh, because the economy is going bad, and he said there wasn't jobs. So during the Obama administration, when the United States was growing at 1.5% and there's not enough jobs, nationalism tends to rise when the people say, why are we giving away our jobs? Or why are we giving away money to foreign aid? All of these type of things. Of course, the, the border along Mexico falls into that category. Mexican immigration falls into that category. And for a lot of people, you know, the Pat Buchanan wing of the American uh, Republican Party, there is this history of nationalism. And they equate trade with something being bad now. Someone like me knows that the richest countries in history, whether it's Greece, Rome, Great Britain, Spain, uh, the United States, the largest trading companies, uh, sorry, countries are the richest. So I think where it went sour was predictably during a weak economy, nationalism rises and NAFTA, and people equated immigration with NAFTA. Now, having said that, NAFTA is outdated. It, it literally had in it, you know, the amount of certain products that could come in, which, you know, this happened in the 90s, right? The world has changed. So it did need to be updated. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the explanation as to how it became public enemy number one for Trump. All right. But it's, it's, fair to, it's fair to say that the Congress will be looking for a new deal and one that is agreeable to both countries, because for many states, particularly the border states, Canada is the number one trading partner. No, yeah, no, no question that the Congress will, uh, the Republican Congress wants an updated deal. Right. Uh, today, Trump said that the Congress shouldn't change anything. Of course, all presidents say that. I know the American media is going crazy. Oh, Donald Trump doesn't want any input, yeah. as if any president on fast-track authority did. But uh, still, they do, they do want a, a full deal, and I think we will get to that. And I think Trump right now is negotiating with Canada. Look, there is within the conservative community in America concern about things. He's creating a different quota system than exists, right? The number of parts, you know, saying that a certain amount has to come from a greater percentage. This is uh, trade protection in a different manner. So... That concerns a lot of, of conservatives. But I do think that he wants a deal. He wants to go into the November election saying we're the party that makes deals. Okay. You wrote a you wrote a piece. If I can just switch horses in midstream here and go to the issue of, uh, of energy and regulation and pollution. We hardly use that word anymore because it's not, it's not so fashionable. But it really boils down to that. And we've had a court ruling in the last few days that uh, a major Canadian pipeline is not going to be continuing, at least in the short term, won't be completed so we can get our oil to customers other than the United States. We sell you our oil at a tremendous discount, and it costs cost us over $117 billion in a recent 10-year period, and that's not sustainable. I know you know that. Uh, but you wrote a piece for Forbes 
how California regulations are polluting the world. Now, California had a cap-and-trade deal with the provinces of Quebec and Ontario. Ontario's opting out under its new conservative government. What are your thoughts on cap-and-trade? And and talk to if you can share with me briefly your thoughts about uh, what one of the points you're making in your in your Forbes piece about California regulations polluting the world. Well, there's a mistake on the left that equates regulations with reducing of pollution, and that's just simply not a you know one plus one doesn't equal two in that equation. If you create regulations, that doesn't necessarily mean you have reduced pollution or the greenhouse gases of which they're concerned. We live in a global community. You just pointed out that Canada is selling oil so that it winds up all over the globe now, right? So well, that's what we want. The United States. That's what we want. Yes. So, so the question is, should a state like California simply ramp up its regulations to make sure that it pollutes the least? Keep in mind that I think California has eight of the dirtiest ten cities in the country. So if simply regulations were all that was required, why isn't it working? Yeah. But on a global matter, it doesn't work because what's happened in California, back, back in the 90s, early 90s, California had... Uh, over 2 million manufacturing jobs. By the way, only about 700,000 government jobs. Now California has over 2.2 million government jobs and less than 700,000 in manufacturing. It sounds like here. A lot of, yeah, right? A lot of that relates to the level of regulation. If you set regulations too high, you drive business out of the state to other areas like India and China who don't care about these issues. And what happens is, in the short term, pollution worldwide actually rises because those jobs now, even Apple's over there, they pollute more. I'm not saying Apple does pollute in particular, but they pollute more. The world's pollution actually rises because the plant isn't in Southern California. It's in Southern India. And so in the short term, the regulations add to worldwide pollution in the long term, they also add, this is very contrary to what the left thinks, but this is simple common sense and it's economics, human nature. In the long term, it also increases pollution because if those jobs were here and if that manufacturing was in California at a slightly lower regulatory level, then that would spur more technological advancements within the United States. Mm-hmm. And the United States would become the world leader in that technology. So, so Mr. Del, Del Beccaro, I'm interrupting you only because we're, we're almost out of time here. But what, when you say California, I could, I could substitute Canada and we'd have the same story. Exactly. Exactly. And so they're actually causing a perverse effect. But in their mind, they don't... They don't really get economics. Economics, you know, if you pass a law, then the human nature takes over. And they don't get that. They just get to pass the law thing. Yeah. And this is true worldwide. I've seen Bernie Sanders in person. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they don't get it. Socialism will work. You just got to do it the right way. That's their mentality. That's not human nature. It never has. Yeah. Well, like I said, I've seen him in person. Need I say more? Yeah, there you go. Thank you very much for the time, sir. I'd have, love to come back. I'd love to have you back. Thank you. All right. Thomas Del Beccaro on The Roy Green Show. He's got two books, The Divided Era and The New Conservative Paradigm. He's the past chairman of the California Republican Party. Tom Caldwell joins me on The Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. He's the chairman of Caldwell Securities there in uh, Toronto and uh, in, uh, in New York, TSE and then uh, NYSE. Tom, thank you very much for taking the time. Where do we start? Which one? Which one? Uh, which one? Which one do you want to focus on? Well, which one? Lots to get our teeth into here, isn't there? Well, yeah. Which one will the international community, the investment community, look at first? Uh, both at the same time. Okay. How do they react? Well, let's take a look at, at, at Trans Mountain, or basically the Kinder Morgan. Let's start with that. Okay. Um, first off, philosophically, if there's anything worse than a tyranny of the majority, it's a tyranny of the minority. 
And that's really what's happening in this Kinder Morgan. And you think you have, you have, the question to ask is who wins with this blockage? Who, who actually wins? And, you know, there's only one group that's a clear winner out of this, and it's U.S. energy companies. They're the ones that win. It removes Canadian supply from world markets. In fact, I'm, as you know, I'm highly cynical in my declining years, and uh, I would love to see somebody like the RCMP track back the sponsorship for the groups that back this blockage. And I wouldn't be surprised if it uh, led down to the U.S. and uh, and where it went, because they're the only winners. The environmentalists, they're not winning, because do you think uh, transporting oil by trains is safer? You know, there's a lot of dead people in Quebec because they didn't want to build a pipeline. And the indigenous people, they don't win. There's no jobs there. Um, you know, so as far as I'm concerned, that's the only one group that wins. And, and we had the same problem with the uh, liquid natural gas. Uh, Americans have now got plants. They're supplying the world. We have a tremendous surplus of gas, and we're not doing anything with it except sitting on it and capping it. So uh, we're, we're really, uh, as the world looks at Canada and big mega projects, uh, this is not a place you want to come because we do not have strong and decisive leadership. Hey, we're going in this direction, and this is what we're going to do, and that's it. Um, you know, we always end up with this soft verbiage type of thing, and the, and the energy federal energy minister's comments are just pure claptrap as far as I'm concerned. And, and when you deal with that, and then you look also at the fact that Canada is keeping its own energy in the ground, to an investor that has to be like double indemnity or whatever. That's a legal term, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, it isn't that it's in the ground. There's an opportunity here. We've got wonderful oil companies like Suncor, right. Natural Resources, but they are constrained in terms of world growth being factors on the world stage because they can't generate earnings and smaller companies can't and that's where the real stuff is in the small companies in alberta so everybody's sort of capped in because of a small group of people basically in british columbia who've taken upon themselves to protect the killer whales which there's been no proof that they're going to be in danger anyway from this non from this stuff so i i just think that it, it's become a political boondoggle and we, it should have been actually maybe dealt with a little bit more firmly earlier on. I'm sure they'll probably work through it in the courts, but in actual fact, the damage has been done. People are going to say, big project, I think we'll give Canada a pass. I mean, America's more business-friendly and drive on from there. The uh, the fear also is, and I mentioned this to my previous guest, Dennis McConaughey, the former executive vice president of TransCanada, they're the Keystone XL group, of course, that even if you satisfy the requirements of this particular court, the feeling is, or the sense is, that you go and cross a series of more T's and dot a series of more I's, and there will be more problems raised, more issues, there will be more obstacles, more obstructions, and you'll find yourself almost f- forever uh, caught up in, in, in court action. Well, I think he's quite right. I mean, and we've seen that with the Keystone XL pipeline. And again, you know, I would not be surprised if it weren't energy companies behind the blockage of that mm-hmm. as well. All of these things point to the fact that Canada is going to be an also-ran in the world view, if, if even that. And this will impact their standard of living, growth, etc., going forward. But in the meantime, I see the government gave Kinder Morgan $4.5 billion to buy the pipeline from them. Uh, so I don't know what happens to that money. We may have, we may have just blown $4.5 billion out the window. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out as well. The, uh, the, the fear, of course, is that is exactly what, uh, what's going to happen. Now, what level of confidence do you have in Trudeau's NAFTA negotiating team. And then I have a trick question for you, but uh, what, well, I'm, I'm well, not sure it's a trick before question. I, you, know, you know, I'm not a big fan of, of uh, Trudeau too, but, but before we get that, let's, let's take a look at what, what we're dealing with here. Uh, Donald Trump is a bully, no ifs and buts. Now, he's done good stuff for the states in cutting taxes and cutting regulations, and he's using that support base to beat up on, on countries literally around the world. And bullies always take on the weak ones, uh, Mexico and Canada. We're so dependent upon the United States, yet he soft pedals Russia, China. For example, uh, our, our, our softwood lumber has attracted duties in the States uh, tariffs for years. The Russians don't. Russian lumber does not. And the, the Americans are masters of non-tariff trade barriers. They will thicken the border with Mickey Mouse regulations or claim anti-dumping. And that's one of the negotiation points with NAFTA. For example, if the Americans act in, a, in a, an imprudent or selfish manner, we can go, there's a settlement mechanism in NAFTA. And we've actually won every time they've done this because it's easy for U.S. companies to claim dumping. And they get the benefit from the tariffs, by the way, and it takes you a few years to unwind it. 
So we want that solution mechanism, <clears throat> which is an important part of our negotiations. My point with, with him, though, is that we, we, you know, Americans do beat up on their friends, and, and that's why they don't have many friends in the world. But I think the thing that happens is not to blame it necessarily on Christopher Friedman and the negotiating team. The problem happened before that, in my opinion. <clears throat> the the uh, Trump only respects strong guys. You know, if you if you and he also respects people who gives him a call, flies down to Mar-a-Lago and say, "Listen, let's cut a deal here." The the concept of of uh, hugging him and and uh, whatever and all oh, we're wonderful people. That's nonsense because he slags you as soon as you go out of the room. And he, of course, he blamed Trudeau for doing the same thing. But I think the right impression was not created right at the beginning that we can deal eyeball to eyeball with him. It may not have changed anything. And, and uh, you know, Maxime Bernier, God bless him, he was right in the supply management nonsense. That, that stuff should have been dealt with a long time ago. And it's a minor event. And Americans actually do run a surplus in dairy with Canada, surprisingly enough. Mm-hmm. So, and when he says this is the worst deal, that every Trump says the worst deal, that's just a lie. It's just not the truth. Do you think that they would go ahead, that he would go ahead without, an, uh, let's not call it NAFTA, because he won't call it NAFTA, but if will he go ahead without a deal with Canada and just to have a bilateral agreement with Mexico? Well, he's got to get that approved by Congress. I understand and, that, but do you think he will try that? Oh, I wouldn't. No, I put nothing by See, as an investor, I, mean, I, I manage money all over the world. I'm, I'm, it's like playing poker with a crazy person. You don't know whether he's going to tip over the table, grab the pot, take the cards, you know, run out of the room. You have no idea what you're dealing with. It's about ego. It's about vanity and how he looks, not necessarily to his political, how he looks to himself. Mm-hmm. So you can't really predict what he'll do. But if you embarrass him in public... He'll just take a tougher line, yeah, and uh, right. it's far better. He's a guy you deal with behind closed doors and cut a deal with. Yeah. But uh, I think he—I I wouldn't put anything past him if we don't have a deal. Now, as he did say on Friday, if we did not have a deal, 25% tariffs uh, this morning. Uh, but that hasn't happened, and fortunately, somebody said, "Listen, we got to stop beating up on Canada," because that flags a message all over the world, by the way, about America. Because every we do more trade, and they do more trade with us. America does. Uh, more trade with us than they do with China, Japan, and Europe all combined. We're by far their biggest trading partner and their biggest customer. So, so can you see being in business beating up your biggest customer? I just no. It doesn't go into my brain. But if for his political base and for his ego feeding, he'll do and say anything. And and uh, you know, in terms of being totally incorrect in his description of NAFTA, I'm reminded of uh, Chairman Mao. He had a great line. He said, "It doesn't matter how big a lie it is you tell; it's how often you tell it." And uh, Americans are buying into that stuff. Yeah. I had a thought earlier today, since this has turned into a, almost a personality cult issue, between Trump and Trudeau. Wouldn't it have been interesting if it had been Trudeau Sr. instead of Jr. dealing with Trudeau now? Well, you know, I'm not a big fan of Trudeau Sr. I'm not either, but it would have been an interesting... He, he, was, he was an intellect and, and had an idea, whereas we're really dealing with a computer-generated image here, which is, <laughs> is quite different. And I, 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 uh, I was on a TV program... And I said that Trump is going to devour Trudeau. And the interviewer said, well, how can you say that? I said, just look at the picture of their first meeting together. Trudeau looks like a, a young kid sitting there and, you know, trying to impress this guy. And Trump was looking at him as if he was, who is this person? What is this? Mm-hmm. That he, he, you, he could tell he, he'd sized him up, that, that this, is, this is somebody he can just steamroller over. Yeah. And, and uh, he's right now. Trudeau does have some good advisors around. His negotiating team is probably not a bad team. It doesn't matter now what the team is you have, because the die is already cast in terms of perceptions that we are seen as weak. And indeed, we are. Canada has, we've been lazy over the years, because it's been so easy to do business in the States, and we don't do business elsewhere in any meaningful way. So we're going to have to grow up and join the world trade fight. It is nothing if not fascinating and interesting, and the implications are huge. And Absolutely. what you told us at the beginning about the reaction of the international uh, investor community speaks volumes. Tom, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much. All the best, Roy. Always good talking to you. Tom Caldwell, chairman of Caldwell Securities. The Trans Mountain Pipeline court ruling. What does it bring along with it? What's the big picture concerning pipeline construction? Dennis McConaughey knows a lot about this. He's the former executive vice president of uh, TransCanada, that's the company that is stewarding or trying to steward Keystone XL to completion. It's been halted again by a Montana judge. And uh, Mr. McConaughey is also the author of a 
a book titled Dysfunction. I guess that, that title is completely uh, accidental, eh, Dennis? It's completely appropriate. Yes, I am. <laughs> this past week. Well, let's start with that. Talk to us about this. what happened this past week and how the, the, the word dysfunction fits into the mix. Well, let's, uh, let's be really specific about what the court did this week. It essentially nullified the approval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline after roughly six years or so of regulatory process on two bases. The first was the court felt that the uh, regulatory decision by the NEB not to consider tanker effects, which were not viewed by the NEB as part of their jurisdiction, was a, uh, a fundamental deficiency. And so that was, as they say in the parlance of regulatory law, a scoping error. The second one, and the more profound one probably, is their uh, judgment that the Canadian government had inadequately consulted with the uh, with various uh, First Nations groups. Now, let's be specific. This was the consultation that was to have occurred after the NEB recommended approval and before the Prime Minister approved it. So this is roughly the period of time between uh, early November of 2016, uh, the early months of 2016 to November of 2016. And their view was that the government of Canada, essentially the Crown, had failed to adequately discharge their right, uh, their obligation to consult with First Nations impacted by the potential recommendation of the NEB. And the court, which really made no judgments about the merits of the project, it actually dismissed many other claims of the appellants about the fact the process was flawed. None of that actually happened. It came down to these two points. But the net effect is this project is stalled, and it is now in the hands of the Trudeau government to, to get this project back on track. And they really, at this juncture, probably only have two options to get that done. And they, one of them is the Supreme Court? Uh, well, yes. Yeah. So one would be an appeal to the Supreme Court, and the other one is an attempt to remedy uh, these deficiencies. So to remedy these deficiencies, uh, one can envisage in the days ahead, the government of Canada will call on the NEB to have some kind of a process to deal with uh, certain, quote-unquote, tanker impacts of certain... Uh, marine uh, habitat uh, and, um, and and mammals um, that they didn't look at uh, back through the prior five years, in it to the degree that the, the, this court was that was that the NEB's uh, responsibility. Well, the NEB didn't take that view. The NEB took the view that uh, that was the responsibility of the Department of Transport and yeah, the Department of exactly. Business. So. That portion of their decision, I think, is the one most prone to appeal, but it's my view that the government of Canada, regardless of what they do on appeals, will still try to remedy this scoping. And the, and the argument with the Indigenous consultation was that they listened to Indigenous groups, but they didn't correspond. They didn't talk back and forth. They didn't discuss so I, it. So, the, to, again, to be quite specific, the, the court took issue with the fact that what the government of Canada did, mm -hmm. in their judgment, was insufficient. Uh, so people should know that the government of Canada established a three-person panel that spent roughly six months between March and November uh, before Trudeau made the decision to approve, listening to uh, broad additional comment and opinion and grievance uh, in the province of British Columbia. But the specifics of the court decision related to the specific actions which the government of Canada undertook with respect to certain First Nations. And it was their view that the Canadian government sending representatives, unempowered representatives, to take notes of their grievances and send them back to Ottawa didn't conform to this court's uh, conception of what was adequate consultation. So the expectation will be, and I suspect that you will see next week, some commitment to redo this consultation uh, to some other standard. Uh, anyway, that that would be what I expect will occur. Now. Yeah, the two the two issues that you've just described, and and thank you for doing that the way you have. I was about to, but you've done it better. 
Uh, I would say, and I'm not a lawyer, but I would say there certainly can be appeal. There's certainly reason for appeal there and grounds for appeal. But we'll see what the government does. It has, rin- it has raised such tremendous emotional response. And, and I believe also some very pragmatic response. But what, what concerns me is that for many people now, this is an issue of national unity that has become an issue of national unity. What is the, you've told me what you think the government's going to do. Yes. What do they have to do? Is this what you've told me they think they're going to do? Is that what they have to do and within the time frame that you've suggested within a week? Well, of course, they don't have to do anything. No, but what would you tell them to do? So at this point, I would tell them to do both. And um, because they're the most practical things you can do. I think the, the reason you appeal this decision is because I think this court failed to, uh, first on the, on the scoping thing, I think that is the place where they were most out of line to second guess the way the NEB, the Department of Transport, had, had uh, assessed their different accountabilities. With respect to the duty of, to consult, the reason one appeals this is because this country cannot continue on having this lack of clarity about what concrete steps have to be taken to discharge adequately this duty that is the duty of the Crown for all of these various major uh, infrastructure projects, which almost inevitably have impacts on First Nations. And keep in mind, it's not that the First Nations had not been consulted through the prior uh, five years of project development and regulatory process. This was this final phase three, uh, the portion of time between an NEB recommendation and a government decision. So uh, I certainly think the government needs to appeal because this court decision really emphasized the breach of these rights as opposed to giving more weight to the other impacts uh, in terms of like how disruptive it would be. Dennis, is there is there a view anywhere within the within the petroleum industry, within the pipeline industry, that it has simply become too complicated to try to build a pipeline in this country, to con- construct a pipeline in Canada, that it's not worth the effort, it's not worth the money, it's not worth the headaches. So just forget about it and let's move on. Is there that kind of thinking? And if there is, how prevalent might it be? Well, there's absolute fatigue and dismay uh, throughout the industry, not just the pipeline component, but the upstream component as well, that getting infrastructure built for Canadian oil sands product and Canadian natural gas, because believe me, this is the same phenomenon is going to afflict potentially LNG development. And the problem is that even once you get an approval, you still uh, have this endless litigation that follows after it in which the regulatory process is endlessly second-guessed and endlessly revisited and all of these procedural errors and scoping errors that are alleged and sometimes, in this case of last week, accepted by what was clearly a court that I think you could say uh, was heavily biased towards ensuring that the rights of First Nations were um, were, were, were dealt with, uh, as opposed to looking at the the broader equities in play of just how much was at stake, how much had been invested, how much the prior regulatory record had largely dealt with many of these issues. Um, so, I mean, there's frustration. And the tragedy here is that these projects have always been fundamentally economic. We've lost enormous value for this country for 10 years by not being able to move forward, whether it was Northern Gateway, whether it was KXL because of the Obama administration, the extra regulatory burdens that were put on Energy East, and then this fiasco of this week. Now, Roy, if I might make one other point. Sure. This decision by the court, I think many will come over the days ahead to see as being likely more narrow than what some on the other side of this issue believe it is. I mean, this was a court saying, didn't comment about the merits of the project. They said that there were deficiencies in scoping and in the process of consultation which the court went out of its way in its ruling to say can be fixed. And the court even said they thought they could be fixed in relatively short order. 
Mm-hmm. That remains to be seen. Well, yeah, because what your what your what your sense is, what the sense is, I think the generic sense now is, regardless of what we do, regardless of how we try to proceed, regardless of how many I's we dot and T's we cross, when we get to the actual point where the rubber hits the proverbial road, there'll be another objection, there'll be another delay, there'll be another stalling, and once again, the thing will come to a crashing halt. Well, so again, uh, <clears throat> the the this is where the deep reflection needs to take place. So I think there's sort of two two things people need to appreciate. In the short run, the government of Canada has to get this project back on track. And they've said over the last 48 hours that that's still their intention. But more profoundly, the government of Canada, whichever this government is going to be going forward, has got to fix some things. It's got to fix by creating greater objective clarity what the duty to consult. And Dennis, I have 30 seconds. It's got to fix the duty to consult, give it more clarity, and these other issues that are constantly brought up after the fact, after we've had approvals, they're going to have to consider things they can do to take less discretion away uh, that these decisions are less likely to be revisited so people have the confidence to invest in infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Give me a quick yes or no. Will Keystone XL be completed at all, ever? Yes. In short, yes. Okay. Dennis McConaughey, thank you so much for the time. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Dennis McConaughey's book is Dysfunction. He's the former executive vice president of TransCanada, and KXL is their baby. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.